Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to season four of the Fast Track Impact podcast. So I said that uh, we would uh, put the current theme on hold for a week while I uh, introduced you to this uh, challenge around the word stakeholder uh, in time for you to uh, then join the discussion uh, which we uh, had uh, this uh, this last Monday. Uh, uh, but uh, the conversation was so insightful and creative that uh, I'm just bursting to uh, to tell you more. So um, a brief episode this week, but uh, an attempt to bring you up to speed with where that discussion got to and uh, where I think this is headed. And um, you'll be able to uh, engage with that in terms of what happens next and opportunities uh, via my uh, my newsletter. I'll put stuff out on social media as well, Twitter and LinkedIn. So uh, still work in progress, but uh, but so much progress made. So first of all, thank you to the uh, just shy of 40 people who came uh, in the end, um, people from uh, around the world, um, uh, in the right time zones at least. Uh, apologies in particular to my Canadian colleagues for uh, the time that we chose. Uh, a nice mix of people from a really different kind of a broad range of, of disciplines um, and also it was kind of almost 50-50 people in professional services roles versus academics so a lot of, um, of professional services colleagues. Uh, feeling kind of trapped in the situation where this is the word that everyone uses and we need to use this on a regular basis for our training, for uh, all of our you know, strategic documents and uh, just day to day. But I need to do something about this. What, what do we do? And uh, and some of the most insightful suggestions coming from those colleagues uh, as well. People uh, at the, the coalface, so to speak, in terms of, yeah... Uh, how do we change the way in which we talk uh, about a whole load of different things? <laughs> and, it, uh, and the conversation was broad ranging. We didn't just restrict ourselves to the word stakeholder. So uh, in case you're coming in fresh, uh, just a very brief uh, recap on this. Uh, so listen to last week's episode for much more on this. But uh, it is uh, the colonial roots of this word stakeholder that are problematic. Um, uh, in particular, the evidence points to uh, Canada and how this was uh, used by settlers who staked and held land that was not theirs to take. Um, I suspect uh, that there are other colonial um, histories uh, that uh, we are not aware of uh, in this. And of course, you can go back and you can look at the etymology of the word. You can say, well, there are other prior meanings to this, but they all have the same thing in common. They have this Western way of knowing and way of being at their heart. Uh, and uh, and I think this is the the, the the thing that really ultimately convinced me, um, especially engaging with Laurie Prange on Twitter, uh, as she just pointed out, yeah, Mark, you might technically be right, but on a moral level, you're wrong if you think that this is not a problem because technically you can find other meanings to this word that predate its use in colonial contexts. 
Um, and uh, and ultimately, what we're we're trying to to do here uh, is to 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 recognise the I guess the spirit uh, behind the, the word, the culture behind the word, the epistemology, the, the the ways in which we view what knowledge is and what counts as valid knowledge, as we stake out, mark as our own, and keep others out with a word like this. And that is very much what we are doing with our language. We know that we do this uh, in terms of in disciplinary terms. We uh, use language to say, yeah, this is uh, you're in or you're out, whether or not, uh, depending on whether or not you understand our jargon. Um, uh, and uh, and increasingly, uh, I think that's the sort of behaviours uh, that uh, that we see as researchers uh, around this whole impact agenda as we compete with each other to build exclusive relationships with stakeholders. Yeah, he's mine, she's mine, um, and no, I'm not sharing my contacts with you. I'm not introducing you to them because I don't want the, to, to, you to dilute uh, or or steal my impact from me. <laughs> um, uh, so. Yeah, this is this is the the spirit, I guess, the culture, the the epistemology behind this word, and it stands at odds with non-Western ways of knowing and being. Uh, and um, I, I think I may have uh, shared this poem with you last week. I forget, a short memory, but uh, it doesn't harm to share it again. Uh, Josie F um, expressed this really powerfully when she wrote, "Colonized minds hear ours." and think possession, decolonizing minds here, ours, and feel connection. And so the the task is to, yeah, we've problematized this, we understand there's an issue, well, we need to do something about this. Uh, and uh, and for me, finding alternatives to this world uh, can only ever be one first initial small step towards a much larger project of decolonizing the language we use across the research community. And this is an important small step, one that might, might make academia more inclusive and welcoming to people who might otherwise feel judged by these Western ways of knowing and being that are implicit in so much of the research community in, and in our language. But I think it's, uh, for me, a step that I, I feel very personally compelled to take, uh, given that I've been responsible for quite a number of now quite highly cited articles that uh, have unthinkingly promoted the use of this word. And so if I'm part of the problem, I also would like to try and be part of the solution to this. And uh, and that's what then stimulated me to start the discussion um, uh, on Twitter, on my email list, and on Monday uh, in uh, in a workshop. And I think um, unexpectedly initially, but actually now I think about it very appropriately and very expectedly, what happened right at the start was after I'd given um, a, a similar kind of introduction to what I've just done that now, someone pointed out, um, yes, so uh, this word indigenous that you keep using, Mark, uh, are you sure that's the, the right word to be using? Because uh, where I come from, that's an insult. And, uh, and this person had been working in Western Africa and someone else piped up and uh, they worked in South Asia. And in both of those regions, the word uh, is cons considered insulting. It implies inferiority or being backward. 
and I'll put a link to uh, an article. Uh, this is uh, from the Journal of Educational Philosophy and Theory, but there uh, is some quite well researched and um, and very valid reasons for these objections. Despite the fact that uh, indigenous, capitalized with a capital I, is regularly used not only in the peer-reviewed literature but across the UN system as well. Uh, so uh, so problematic. Hmm. What else can we use? Uh, instead of this. And uh, my mind goes back, actually, to some of my own early papers on this. Uh, I have been guilty of using this word as well as the word stakeholders, but I also have previously talked about this as local, uh, local, local knowledge, local people. And uh, it maybe doesn't work in every context, uh, but I do think that this word local does express the context-specific nature of these people's knowledges, their ways of being, and very often their ties to the land. Um, another one that was suggested by someone in the workshop, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce this, I apologise, um, it's Greek, uh, but it was the word auto... Uh, you know what, I'm going to spell it, auto, and then C-H-T-H-O-N-O-U-S, uh, and it means effectively of the land in Greek. <clears throat> So uh, that was a, a nice wake-up call to just say, hold on a minute. Um, uh, and this was a, a quite a nice worked example of, uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, what's the problem? But depending on where you sit, uh, your background, where in the world you are, this is landing very differently. And let's just interrogate our assumptions for a minute here. Uh, and not assume that uh, a word that uh, that works for me is going to land in the same way for you as it lands with me. And just ask, just have the humility to uh, to, to be curious enough to to listen, to invite uh, questions, feedback, uh, and uh, and raise our game, do better. So this, this led quite nicely, because uh, we've got a, a non-English word here proposed as an alternative to, uh, to Indigenous. It led to the discussion that had already been raised in the Twitter debate on this, uh, that uh, perhaps we shouldn't, in fact, be using an English word to replace this word stakeholder. Maybe we need, on purpose, to be looking for a non-English word. Uh, and we should be doing this on the basis that uh, these alternatives shouldn't be chosen just to see, suit the needs of English-speaking researchers like me, who, like me, struggle to pronounce words in other languages and dialects, and who need to be able to remember these words. After all, this Anglo-centric approach to research is in large part what has actually led to these problems in the first place. Uh, interestingly, though, others uh, in the workshop argued that, yeah, fair point, but the word stakeholder is an English word. Uh, and so this is a prob problem primarily for English speakers. It doesn't translate in easily into other languages and is perhaps less of a problem in some other languages. Uh, and uh, it was also pointed out that if you can find an alternative in plain English, so a normal English word, rather than a word like stakeholder that is kind of metaphorical in its roots and meaning, then actually you can then translate those plain English words into other languages much more easily. And some alternative, assuming we can come up with an alternative, might then uh, spread more effectively internationally. 
But this is where the rub comes, because uh, part of, in fact, probably the majority of our workshop was spent uh, discussing the, the fact that it is going to be very difficult, if not impossible, and in fact, you know what, inadvisable to even attempt to come up with a replacement. At least if you want that replacement to be a single universal word or phrase or term that you're now going to get everyone in an ideal world to use instead. And so people suggested that perhaps we should be encouraging people to find their own context-specific replacements rather than trying to suggest a universal solution to the problem that could be applied by everyone. Uh, the issue is, of course, that no term is ever going to work universally, given the very different purposes for which we want to use it in. So, for example, to refer to partners uh, versus interested groups that we aren't directly collaborating with, two quite different groups. And if that's my purpose, well, let's actually be specific. And no, I'm talking about my project partners here. No, I am talking about that wider group of people we're not collaborating with, but who have uh, an interest in this. Um, uh, great. Uh, so depending on your purpose, different terms are appropriate. Uh, but also your context, uh, geopolitical, ethnic, other contexts in which we want to use these terms are going to influence uh, the kind of words or terms that uh, are going to be appropriate, that are going to land well with people. Uh, and in addition to this, someone pointed out that, uh, of course, many people have multiple roles or hats. So, for example, I am research lead for an international conservation charity. I have a stakeholder hat, so to speak. Um, uh, there we go. I've just used that word again. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, here I am uh, representing a charity. And depending on which of those, whether it's my, my, um, uh, my center co-director role, whether it's my chief executive or fast track role, uh, these are a different hat, so I might want to represent different perspectives, um, uh, all within me. So <laughs> a single term, yeah, I, 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 I can be uh, an end user of a product. I can, uh, I can be a, a, a project partner. I, I can just be someone who has an interest, who wants to keep a, a watching brief. Um, and I do that in that charity role on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, how do you get a single term that's going to work for people like that? And so even with all of that said, I think there is a, a likelihood of offence uh, if we try and generalise to a single term. Uh, and you just have to look at uh, lots of examples out there. So um, in Canada, for example, researchers are encouraged to refer to the individual groups, uh, so people groups that they're working with uh, by name, instead of using the term Indigenous or First Nations as a catch-all. And uh, for people who live in the UK, you may be aware of this. In fact, not everyone even is aware of this in the UK, uh, in my experience, especially in England, <laughs> um, uh, without meaning to be offensive to English people. But um, in the UK, very often um, you offend someone from Northern Ireland or Scotland by referring to them as Brits. And clearly you offend someone from Scotland by referring to Britain as England, as a lot of people outside Britain, uh, Britain do. Uh, but uh, yeah, this word Britain actually... Actually, what is that? Well, Britain actually is the island of Britain, which includes England, Scotland and Wales. The United Kingdom came into being when we acquired, through dubious means, I would argue, Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and, um, and so 
Uh, if you're Northern Irish um, or if you are Scottish, then that Brit label, um, depending on your politics, uh, certainly isn't doesn't feel very inclusive um, and may in fact imply um, uh, colonial power struggles um, that uh, in Scotland at least we may be trying to uh, to achieve independence from. Uh, so uh, these universal labels, wherever we use them, uh, they might be a handy shorthand, but they're rarely accurate. And these inaccuracies, when it comes to a person's national or ethnic identity, generally don't work for people, and they don't work on a fairly deep level. Uh, so, uh, so there's a principle here to avoid overgeneralization, especially when it comes to things which are sensitive. And this is just a kind of a rule for life, effectively. <laughs> But I think that the issue goes deeper than just the need to adapt the term to our purpose and the context in which we want to use it. Without the right principles underpinning the operationalization of a new term, that new term has the potential to become just as problematic as the old term, depending on how it actually gets used in practice. So as you know, I, I work in the sustainability field and I now do not use the word sustainability. And many of my colleagues avoid the word sustainability like the plague because it got hijacked by big corporates who wanted to have their own sustainability strategies, uh, corporate uh, responsibility, sustainability, all of this kind of stuff. And you know what? A whole load of that stuff uh, was and is greenwash. Uh, and so we look for new terms uh, as the old terms get hijacked and used, uh, I would argue, irresponsibly. Again, there's some politics in there, I'll let you decide on, uh, on your view of how uh, the corporate world uses uh, this, uh, this term. Uh, but I certainly avoid it now. Uh, and so instead, the idea is that rather than focusing on the terms um, and, and all of this kind of stuff, we should try and focus more on the people and then the non-human species that are affected by the decisions we might be taking, the interventions we might be designing and introducing, our research projects, um, broader issues, whatever it is that we're focusing on. So let's spend our time instead creating processes that empower these people, entities, organizations, species, uh, that, that empower them to have equal voice and benefit from our work using whatever terms seem appropriate to the context, rather than trying to come up with a universal term. Essentially, we should be trying to encourage people to self-identify the labels that they prefer us to use. In the same way that we're now quite familiar with when it comes to pronouns. I'm not going to assume that uh, you would prefer to be referred to as he, him, or she, her, or they, them. Uh, I'm going to let you make that decision for me and, uh, and I will be led by you. And it's a similar kind of principle. But the principle of giving people the right to choose their own preferred terms, I would argue, is just the start. There have to be other principles here too. Uh, and I'm not sure that they're fully worked out yet. We didn't um, have uh, enough time, I suspect. But uh, we're talking things um, uh, here like, I don't know, systematically representing the interests of as many different groups as possible effectively managing power dynamics between participants, empowering everyone to have an equal voice in decisions that affect them. 
that's the stuff that matters. Uh, whatever the terms are that you use, that's where our focus should be. I think as long as we are clear on our definition, then that means that uh, we know what we mean by what was the word stakeholder, then that opens up the door for us to come up with a fairly endless range of different terms. Um, and it gives us the freedom then to choose terms that will work for any given purpose and any given context. Um, uh, so let's just pause and think for a moment about that definition, because um, as I said last week, we've got Freeman's original definition from 1984 of uh, anyone who can be affected by or who can affect a decision. And as I pointed out, this only includes two characteristics. So this is uh, those people who are impacted by the decisions, affected, either positively or negatively, and those who have the influence to be able to shape those decisions, uh, those who can affect effect. Uh, but uh, interest is, of course, the third and crucial characteristic which we routinely consider, for example, if you're doing an interest influence matrix, or if you're thinking about interested parties, interest groups, uh, who you need to involve in a decision-making process, a project, etc. So we've got these three characteristics. Uh, now this is uh, my own thinking on this. Uh, I've got a paper um, that I will soon be submitting for um, uh, for review, uh, which describes um, a process of analysing who might be relevant for decision-making processes. Um, this is uh, what I'm calling stakeholder analysis now, but this process to analyse who is relevant. Uh, that considers these three I's, interest, influence, impact. So that's what I think matters, that's, that's my definition uh, of this. Um, but I'll let you decide if there's something missing there. There's lots of other things you might uh, add in, so legitimacy, salience, things like that are in particular in the business management literature that you might want to take into account. But um, in fact, actually writing that paper really taught me something quite profound. Um, it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard work. How do you replace stakeholder analysis in the title of a paper that is trying to come up with uh, what I think is one of the biggest innovations in stakeholder analysis for three decades? Um, yeah, that's that's a problem, and I think I might put stakeholder analysis in the keywords. Um, that's that's maybe going to be <laughs> the place where you might actually see this. Um, but yeah, how do you do that? It was throughout this paper. How do you keep replacing this? And uh, what I realised was that in fact this word stakeholder was lazy in large part. Uh, it was this catch-all that I could just trot out that made it easy for me to write these sentences. But in many of these sentences I realised, huh, I'm not talking about everyone here. I am specifically referring to project partners. Or in others I'm referring to publics or citizens or to a specific group. Um, and so let's just actually name these. And now, actually, I look back at this paper and I'm much more specific. I'm being much more accurate in my language. This has actually improved the quality of the paper. Rather than making it harder to understand, it makes it easier to understand. But having said all of this, and I think these are the, probably the most important points that you'll hear from this, I do still think, and a lot of people are saying, yeah, great, but... I still feel like I need a word from this. Um, I've got to deliver a training programme next week and we're doing stakeholder analysis. Uh, we need a, a word that we can use, uh, a priori, 
uh, before we've managed to actually reach out to anyone to say, look, as a project team, let's sit down and think systematically about who might be relevant. Uh, and uh, I haven't yet worked out who I should be approaching to find out how they would like me to refer them to refer to them. Maybe I don't have time to do that for everyone. I need something that just says, yeah, we're meeting to talk about our what <laughs> if they're not stakeholders. Um, so a very practical challenge. Um, and so we did move to the question of alternatives. And uh, so I'm not going to repeat what I said last week. Um, I went back over this, we rehearsed this, uh, some of the arguments, debated some of these. Uh, we went back to this question of, um, yeah, uh, relevant parties, is that um, too close to the legal jargon? Um, the sense I have from having uh, researched this a bit is that the more common term is interested parties um, in legal uh, terms, but uh, any lawyers listening, please do correct me there. I, I wonder if it's as big a problem as we think. Uh, if we don't like that relevant groups, uh, maybe that works, uh, or just partners, actually, because very often that's, that's quite a different group. But um, when we can, we are upgrading. Uh, you're, you're not just a relevant group that I'm going to, uh, to engage uh, in, in a more minor way. You're actually integral to this and you're a, a partner. Um, uh, but of course, you can't do that with everyone, uh, especially in projects that have uh, hundreds and hundreds of organisations that might have an interest in what you're doing, which is fairly common. Um, and so, um, so yeah, we still have those options. Um, and, I, and I think that that was effectively the, the conclusion of the discussion on social media and via email prior to the, the workshop. So so great, there, there are some options, but um, the workshop did take us one step further to this that said, well, you know what, maybe there are two different ways of coming at this problem. So the first approach, which is the approach that I've just described to you, is if we need a new term, then the first place you start is with the definition. So if we can define this term uh, accurately, then based on that definition, we can come up with a term that accurately and comprehensively sums up all of the key characteristics of the term, the, the, the definition. So great, fairly obvious. But an alternative approach is to develop a typology. Um, uh, and uh, the, the idea here is that we try to identify all of the different types of groups, human and non-human, uh, across every different context that we can imagine. And we then have a list of different types of organisation, entity, people, whatever they might be, that we can now refer to by name. Now, there have been many lists generated over the years to help people think holistically around this and avoid marginalising certain groups. Uh, checklist. Have you thought about these different types of people? Huh, good idea. Great. And so that's fine. That works. Um, but uh, there's no exhaustive list. Uh, there's lots of overlap between these lists. Um, so yeah, things like you'll see citizens, policy, industry, things like that pop up again and again. Um, 
and I think that, that that's useful, but um, but the problem is I can't, when I want some kind of phrase to just say we are talking today about who might be relevant, um, yeah, well maybe that works, who's relevant to engage with in our project. Uh, but if we're looking for a term, um, uh, who are the policy industry, third sector, etc. No, that yeah, it's a helpful tool as a checklist, but it still doesn't give us a term. And so uh, the, the suggestion here was to try and boil these down to the fewest possible kind of meta categories. And if we could do that, and if we could come up with maybe two or three meta categories that are fully comprehensive, then maybe that works. And the suggestion that came out was nature, people and organisations. So let's have a conversation today about um, uh, who are the, the people, organisations or nature that might be relevant to this decision, to this project. Or we could do a nature, people, organisations analysis instead of a stakeholder analysis. Hmm. What do you think? Uh, I certainly think it has merit and is, uh, is worth discussing, thinking about a bit further. Ultimately, though, I think uh, if the goal is to include and empower more people to engage with research, which is my starting point here, uh, whether we're researchers, um, sorry, whether, whether we're engaging these people as researchers um, uh, in their own right. Um, so uh, go back to episode four, I think, of, uh, of this season where I interviewed... Uh, Jackie Reynolds and uh, Nick Gratton from University of Staffordshire about um, their uh, Get Talking programme. Uh, they've got a really nice uh, REF 2021 impact case study, actually, if you want to check that out now. Um, uh, they have community researchers. Uh, so uh, let, let's just call these people that they are equals. They're doing the research alongside them. Let's call them researchers. <laughs> uh, let's call them partners if we can. Um, maybe they are others who are just relevant that we need to engage with in some shape or form. But if we want to be inclusive of all of these people and really decolonize and include, then we need to move far beyond just terms and language. Instead, we need to use debates around language, such as we're having now, to try and achieve something deeper, to try and open our community's eyes to what I would argue is the everyday racism we perpetuate by continuing to use words like stakeholder and indigenous. And use these conversations, use the insights that emerge to galvanize us into developing processes, that can help us to identify, represent, empower, and give voice to those we want our research to serve. So a four point summary from this, and then I'll uh, conclude with the, the next steps, which are a work in progress. Uh, so one is to avoid using the word stakeholder wherever we can. And uh, from experience this morning, <laughs> talking about a project where I'm in charge of doing stakeholder analysis, I failed miserably multiple times. Oh my goodness, it's going to take me a minute, uh, but it's a work in progress. Let's try to use this word less wherever we can. Number two, where possible, we design processes that enable us to work with... Um, uh, with with those people that we want to to, to help uh, to self-identify how they would like us to refer to them 
And as I said, we can't always do that, but let's let's try and do that a bit more and think a bit more deeply about how these words land with others and get them to tell us how they would prefer uh, to be uh, referred to. And of course, where this isn't possible, number three, then, we use language that accurately describes the groups we're working with. So, for example, this is nature, it's people, it's organisations, if you want some simple words. Maybe it's partners, maybe it's relevant groups or relevant parties. Uh, there are lots of different choices for us here. We choose them based on our purpose and our context. But the fourth point is, in all cases, that we should be focusing more on the principles. Things like humility, inclusion, empowerment and voice. And we should be focusing more on these principles than we focus on the terms themselves if we want to be able to adapt our language effectively to our purpose and context and learn from our mistakes. So just to conclude, uh, next steps, work in progress. Uh, someone suggested we need to do a wiki, uh, a Wikipedia entry. Uh, that's a great way of making this really visible and much more accessible than a journal article. Uh, we need to maybe have an editathon. Uh, I've yet to learn what that is and how that works, but it sounds like uh, an accessible way to do this that uh, other than just uh, researchers can engage with and that could hopefully reach a, uh, a significant audience. So, uh, so let's see how that goes, and uh, I will keep you informed. So stay tuned. I'll let you know on the podcast, but it'll also be in my newsletter and on social media. And I look forward to continuing this discussion. <laughs>